All right, Uh, as it says in the Grace Today, how do we react to ungodliness within the church? Moreover, what is the difference between the visible church and the invisible church? This seminar will endeavor to answer those questions and seek to understand how that distinction affects our lives. Starting off, I would uh, like to express appreciation to two particular individuals. First, of course, would be our senior pastor, Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, I've said this before, I'll say it again, and I think it's uh, very clear that it it is his background work of verse by verse, book by book, expository preaching Uh, that really has opened the door to our times of Sundays in July, in which we are able to make uh, topical studies, go to particular passages, particular questions of the Scripture, and really try to get a hold on them. The other person that I would like to express appreciation to is my son Michael, seated right here, Uh, Michael asked me this week, Dad, do you need any help? Uh, And he literally put together nearly all of the PowerPoint slides. I've learned over the years that uh, PowerPoint, and this is the Apple version, uh, really helps us to be able to absorb and understand a little better than we might otherwise. We hear and we see concurrently. Uh, So Mike put this together. And if you find it helpful, one guy is already taking a picture of them, feel free to do so. Uh, You can express your appreciation to my son, Mike. Now, let me give a little connection to what's been going on over the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, I uh, taught a session on the underground church, going back uh, to the early church years. During one of the episodes of the underground church, as the church emerged, they lapsed into a very harmful schism. They were being right, but they were being right in the wrong way. This passage that we look at today will help us to understand what occurred, how it fit into it, where we go from there. Uh, Questions were raised at that time that uh, surprisingly crop up even now. It's only been maybe a couple of months since one of the men in choir uh, asked a variation of the key question that that schism raises. We'll understand a little bit how to respond to it as we go through this. Last week, uh, if you were here, my uh, fellow elder and brother, Harry Walls, was teaching a seminar, uh, and the topic was, why do good people do bad things. And it, uh, of course, was from Proverbs chapter 7, and it described the religious, the very religious adulteress who was there at that time. So this builds on that, pulls it together. Uh, He was showing some of the underlying micro aspects of it. We'll look at the macro perspective of it this morning. Let's take a look at, we'll start with the text, Matthew 13, 24 through 30, then we skip over 
six verses to 36 through 43. Jesus presented another parable to them. This is immediately following the parable of the sower. The sower sows good seed into four different types of soil. So it's good seed into four different types of soil, some of which is good and some of which is terrible soil. This is about two different types of seed. Two different types of seed. One of the guys in choir this morning said, uh, sounds like a seedy topic. Um, And he was right. Uh, We talk about good seed and we're talking about very bad seed. Let's read the text. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done that. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the time of the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parables, the parable, if you will, of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Christ identifies himself as the sower. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the Father will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's read that again. He who has ears, let him hear. R.C. Sproul, uh, the great preacher and theologian who has since gone to be with the Lord, would teach his seminarians, find the drama in a text and communicate 
proclaim the drama. Good advice. We like to understand stories. We like to hear what's going on. It's hard to find anything much more dramatic, carefully understood, than what we are seeing in this particular passage. Uh, The action of an unknown individual in an agrarian economy threatens the food supply, the economy of that whole community. They just might not make it. Add to that the understanding that our Lord calls for indicates that this is also an action that could threaten the survival of the very church itself. This is nothing to take, serious, uh, to take lightly. Uh, this is nothing not to think about and ponder its significance. Now, there's two initial aspects. We're going to talk about two initial points of, uh, of the story that jump out at us that should uh, immediately grab our attention. Uh, We're going to look at what the parable communicates, what's the explanation that Christ gives to his disciples. Then what do we do with it? What do we do with it? There are four points that are described in the negative. We don't do four things with this parable. We do eight things. So you have four negatives and eight positives that take place. Uh, At the end, we're going to end up near where uh, Mike Riccardi was at the end of the first service. So you have a roadmap. It sometimes helps to provide that so you don't lose hope if it seems to be lasting way too long. Now, the first thing to note, uh, this is a parable. And as with all parables, there is limited applicability. Parables do not, by the nature of the case, they cannot cover the entirety of the underlying spiritual reality. And that will prove to be the case. We're going to see that in one particular aspect of this parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Second thing... Note very clearly the call to pay special, particular, and close attention. At the end, and we looked at it, we read it twice, the Lord says, if you have ears to hear, hear. Now, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired is God-breathed, that the man of God may be adequate, complete, lacking nothing, and equipped for every good work. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we understand that, and we should. But there are occasions in which the Holy Spirit says, wait a minute, be sure you get the truth of this particular passage. Be sure you get the truth of that particular passage. This is one of those passages. It involves truth that is uniquely and particularly important to the church. Don't miss it. 
some others. Mark 4, 9, and it's uh, telling of the parable of the sower, ends with the same admonition. Be sure you pay attention and you understand what's being taught here. Isaiah 6.10 indicates that a punishment, a judicial punishment being imposed upon the people of Israel would be that they would not be able to hear. They would not be able to understand. Seven times in the two chapters of Revelation uh, that describes the seven churches, starting off in the early part of the book of Revelation, we read, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, if you want to do additional study on this particular topic, uh, the slide that you have in front of you will give you the text of uh, Matthew 13, uh, 43, Isaiah 6:10, Matthew 11:15, and then the passages in Revelation. So the Lord tells us himself that this is a passage that is extremely important, and we need to make sure we don't overlook its meaning. It's all too possible for that to occur, if we're honest, as believers. So listen up. Slaps you upside of the head and says, pay attention. Uh, no, we have the, uh, the admonition of the Holy Spirit that we need to make sure that we get and we understand this. There is a huge amount of underlying question, underlying confusion as to what is going on in this particular parable. At least five questions are raised uh, concerning or within the parable. First of all, and this is uh, where we see the second part of the account, the disciples say, we don't understand. Can you explain it to us? And they're, of course, speaking with gratitude. They're speaking with respect. Uh, But what does it mean? And we see that in uh, verse uh, 36. There is confusion as to whether a plant is wheat or is it a tear. Okay? What we're talking about, and we'll go into, we'll see this uh, developed, uh, but there is a confusion in the minds of the servants, and it is a deliberate, calculated confusion. We're going to see that the evil one tries to inject into the church, uh, but it's a confusion as to what a particular plant would be. It's a confusion that prompts the distinction that we talked about earlier, the distinction between the true church or invisible church, and we use that uh, very calculatedly, very deliberately, and the visible church, what appears to be the church. You have a question as to the origin of this problem. Where did it happen? Did God cause the problem? Did the Son of Man just not put down good seed? Or is there something else going on here? And this is a rhetorical question, totally. Uh, but this question comes to the mind of the servants. What, what has happened in this case? 
again, this is a planting of a field in a manner that could threaten the very economic and physical survival of a community in an agricultural agrarian society. Uh, Many of you have family roots that go back into that particular time. Uh, My cousin, who is visiting here today, reminded me that uh, our maternal, or in my case, my maternal grandfather uh, was a lifelong wheat farmer in in the city of Kansas. Change that in the state of Kansas. Come on in and find a seat. (laughs) Next question that has to be addressed, are we talking about something that has happened within the world or within the church? Not an easy question to answer. Takes a little time to think but it is something that will crop up. The next question, and it crops up immediately as we look in the text of the parable, what's the appropriate response? What do we do? What do we not do about this? What do we do when we see someone who is within the church who is conducting himself or herself in a very ungodly manner? How do we react to that? Do we push for the complete elimination of any sinner from within the church? Or do we take another approach? And the text makes it very clear why we should do the latter. So we have five questions that are raised. First of all, we'll take them one by one. Matthew 13, 36. He left the crowds and went into the house. We know from uh, Dr. MacArthur's teaching that Christ would sometimes teach in parables to make a point clear to those who were his people, but to obscure it to the people who were not in allegiance to him. And some of that uh, we see exactly here. It was not uncommon for the disciples to say, Lord, please, we want to make sure we got it We heard the story, we heard the parable, now help us to understand what it means and where we go. 1327, the slaves of the landowner had come to the landowner and said, Sir, didn't you not sow good seed? Didn't you buy good quality seed? Then what happened? How then does it have all of these weeds, all of these terrors. So the first question is, uh, what's going on here? What is the meaning? Appropriate question, and it's one that really uh, we all should ask. Paul compliments the Bereans in the book of Acts. He says the Bereans searched the scriptures to make sure that what they were being taught was really accurate. That is a lifestyle and a policy, an approach Uh, to our faith that we all should have. The second question, confusion as to whether a plant is wheat. We know that this is uh, the, the plant that was deliberately intended. It was a staple of life. People would use it to make bread. We still do. 
Or is this a particular type of weed? Uh, to some extent, they use the expression tares, uh, the old English expression for weeds. You can call it whichever one you uh, find appropriate. Sometimes in the interest of being somewhat poetic, we'll use the word tares. Weeds does just as well. Uh, Dr. MacArthur in the MacArthur Study Bible and in his commentary on the passage uh, notes that the Greek word is zizanion. Sounds like a great word, zizanion. You might even want to plant some of that. You don't if you know what it is. Uh, it is most likely something that is referred to as Darnell. It only takes a little bit of internet uh, research. Darnell usually grows in the same production zones as wheat. It was a serious weed of cultivation until modern machinery enabled the seeds to be separated efficiently from seed wheat. The similarity between these two types of plants is so close that in some regions uh, we are told, and this is straight out of Wikipedia if you want to check my source, uh, is referred to as false wheat. It bears a close resemblance to wheat until the ear appears. The spikes are more slender than those of wheat. They are oriented uh, in a different way. Wheat will appear brown when ripe. At the time of ripe, the weed, Darnell, will appear black. It's not clear until a certain time of growth just what it is that you're dealing with. Uh, It becomes apparent early on, you start to wonder, but it takes a certain amount of time for that to take place, for it to be fully detected. There's confusion as to whether the plant will nurture. Wheat, as we know, is the basic source of what we often use to make bread, source of life. We love it. Uh, Wheaties, cereal, cream of wheat. Uh, It's used in another, a number of circumstances, a number of environments. Darnell, on the other hand can become infected and can cause uh, what is referred to as a drunken nausea. These are not my words. It can make you sick. It can also inebriate you, uh, cause you to be outside of your senses. All right? Now, why, why would this kind of thing ever be put in to a field? Why would it ever be put into a field? The answer to that is, uh, as the text points out, an enemy is taking a deliberate action. Put yourself in the position of an agrarian agricultural economy. You grow what you are going to market. You grow what you are going to use to pay off your creditors. You grow what you are going to use to feed yourself, your family, and in many cases, your livestock. Someone plants Darnell in there, it will cause nausea, it will cause sickness, and it may even get you to the point where you are not thinking clearly. Definitely a deliberate military tactic. Uh, John points out that uh, uh, this was not uncommon at the time, and in fact, uh, he notes that there is even uh, a law 
in Roman culture that would prohibit, seriously prohibit this type of conduct. The text of Scripture tells us later that these weeds are compared to two other things that should give us a great deal of sobriety, cause a great deal of concern. Verse 41, tares are described as stumbling blocks. The Greek word, and we can understand its impact in our culture, scandalon. They cause scandals within the church. Disgrace within the church. Cause other people to stumble into sin, to perhaps even reject the gospel outright. The other description that is given to us of them, those who commit lawlessness. Those who commit lawlessness. The course of conduct in their life the pattern is described as deliberate noncompliance with the law of God. Uh, one of the men uh, in here at this moment, at the beginning of first service, said he's been studying First John, which talks an awful lot about the difference between the visible and the invisible church. He's right. 1 John describes frequently what sons of lawlessness, those who commit lawlessness, are like at the core. Those who commit lawlessness, those who are stumbling blocks, these tares, these weeds, are no light laughing matter. I hate it when the technology doesn't work as it should. Confusion as to the origin. Come on in, Stephanie, and find a place if you want. Where it happened? Where did this start? Okay. What's going on here? Where did this come from? Again, the question was raised, is this a result of good seed or is it poor seed? And the text says, no, these tares are, quote, Sons of the evil one. An enemy came in under cover of darkness after the field had been planted with wheat and sowed weeds. Not just weeds, not just harmless weeds, but potentially toxic, sickening, nauseating, intoxicating weeds. And the weeds are referred to explicitly in the text as, quote, Sons of the evil one, sons of the evil one, sons of the devil, one and the same. Now, this should direct your attention, if you know the scriptures well, to John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. As such, as such, with that description, it should not take us by surprise when we see people sometimes infiltrating the church who are liars, deliberately, uh, sometimes otherwise. 
and who are murderous or potentially murderous. It should not take us by surprise at all when that happens. Next question, is this within the church or is this within the world? Best answer to this is yes. (laughs) To some extent, this is both. The field, the field very clearly, very accurately, uh, is referred to as the world. Okay, so we understand that. No question at all about that. However, the text identifies this as an account concerning the kingdom of heaven. This is an account concerning the kingdom of heaven. Also, also within the text, we see that believers have been planted within the world. You're going to end up with a field full of wheat, metaphorically representing a plurality, a large number of assembled believers. A large number of assembled believers. And at the end, we see the contrast. Come on in, guys. Jordan, I think there's a couple seats up here if you want. Uh, There is the contrast of the outcome of believers and unbelievers. Okay, yeah, this is about the world where the church has been planted, but yeah, more appropriately, more significantly at its heart, this is about the church. How we find, how we understand ungodly conduct within the church As you look through this passage, one thing that has encouraged me greatly is Matthew 18, 16. Christ builds his church. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this particular passage. Now, the challenge faced by the servants is telling the difference visually between the true wheat and the tares that have been planted within the field. Hence the title, The True Church, contrasted with the visible church. To some extent, what we see may not comport with the nature and full reality of what's going on. Now, there is a certain amount of confusion as to the appropriate response Uh, What do we do? What do we not do about this particular situation? Uh, More often than not, as you are going through a particular passage of Scripture, and this is a pattern that you will find in uh, Jonathan Edwards, as well as Martin Lloyd-Jones, when they analyze a Scripture, they start off with what it is not calling for us to do, what it is not calling for us to think or understand. So, the first thing that we want to start off with, what is it that the Scripture tells us not to do or not to think? Four things. First of all, the servants are not in any way berated, chided, or admonished 
for the fact that this occurred. Occurred under cover of darkness. Uh, They were having appropriate rest. This is not blaming this problem on the people of God. This is not blaming this problem upon the uh, servants, not telling us to dispense with appropriate rest. The kingdom of God grows even during times when the people of God are having the sleep that God calls us to take. Uh, Psalm, I believe it's 121, he gives to his own even as they sleep. So it's not telling us to dispense with rest of any sort. It's not telling us to dispense with normal uh, relaxation that we as people uh, need. Secondly, don't let tares, don't let weeds within the wheat surprise or shock you. Uh, I've, I was a preacher's kid. Uh, I grew up in one form of the church or another. Uh, I will reach the birth date that Psalm 90 tells me is approaching the end this December. I've seen and read a lot of situations. I spent years working on fraud cases that targeted the Christian community. Okay? It can happen. Lesson number two, what not to do uh, is to let yourself be shocked when this thing occurs, when someone within the church really demonstrates a course of ungodly conduct. The tares and the wheat at times will sit side by side in the same pew, the same row, and in the same service, hearing the same song, singing the same melody, hearing the same word. Okay? Choosing to go in different directions. One thing about this parable also, you find a strong interaction between divine sovereignty God's control over everything, and human responsibility. Both are present and should neither one be overlooked. In keeping with the totality of Scripture, this passage is not telling us that we don't carry out church discipline. We do carry out church discipline, and one of the reasons that we do is because we know and we understand that we have wheat and we have tares at the same time. Because of that, we have to. We're called to carry out church discipline. We are called to censure false teachers. We're called to carry out church discipline. Uh, When I teach new members classes, I point out that uh, the Scripture and our bylaws both point out that there is a private sin that Matthew 18 talks about between believers and hopefully resolved between believers before it has to go to uh, expelling a person from the church. There are also public sins, blatant, no question about it, requiring quicker action by those in leadership within the church, one of those being, of course, teaching and proclaiming false doctrine. You have in front of you a number of passages Uh, that the entirety of Scripture talks about uh, as the importance of carrying out church discipline. 
We'll go into this more in a few minutes. We are looking, when we carry out church discipline, for hearts of repentance, for hearts of repentance, fruit of repentance that has been implemented. That repentance will demonstrate itself in doctrine, speech, and conduct. Doctrine, speech, and conduct. All three of those together giving us a partial understanding of the heart of the individual. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. This parable indicates that as the wheat develops, as it grows, as the darnel beside of it grows, over the course of time, it becomes possible for the slaves to tell the difference. The way the grains of wheat are structured, uh, you begin to tell early on. It can be uh, a mistake. You try to avoid that. But we begin to tell early on where the difference is, what the problem is. The last thing that we are to understand, uh, and this leads to a very significant application of this particular parable, uh, we are not to conduct a wholesale, full-blown, early on purge of the tares from the field, from the church, or from our culture. We need to understand very clearly we never will obtain a perfect church of perfect people with perfect theology of a perfectionist nature. Um, I grew up in a church, as my cousin will confirm, that taught that by a second work of grace, you could have the sin nature eradicated. It will not happen. It will not occur. It will always be an ongoing battle, an ongoing structure, a struggle in the life of the believer. Why? And we need to go back. Why are we not to do a full-blown purge? First of all, the Scripture says not to. Secondly, the Scripture says it will not lead to the results you want. But more importantly, the text says we need to avoid damage to the true plants of wheat. We could be wrong. We could be wrong in a premature assessment of a particular plant. Okay? We might look at it. The light might be off. We might misread what we think we are seeing. Secondly, and here at this point, we start to see uh, an aspect, one crucial aspect in which the parable breaks down. The Holy Spirit is still working in the lives of tares. Second Timothy 2, 25-26, the man of God is to be patient when wronged. He is to gently but with power instruct in hope that God will grant repentance and the individual may be able to escape from the snare of the evil one, from the control of the evil one. God may choose to grant regeneration. If God can change an inorganic, simple chemical compound of H2O, we're familiar with this, common water, 
into a very complex organic chemical compound we would refer to as fine wine. And we read about that occurring in John chapter 2. Ezekiel 36 tells us that God can change a heart of stone, metaphorically speaking, into a heart of flesh. Then it will be no problem for the God of the universe who created ex nihilo, he created everything that exists out of nothing, to change a tear into a grain of wheat to make a real conversion of a child of hell, a son of the evil one, into a son of God. And that is, in fact, what has happened to the lives of every one of us who truly know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.4, that took place. God ordained that before the foundation of the world. So we have to be sure... We have to be sure that we do not act in a manner premature to the timing of Almighty God. All right, what do we do with this? Those are the four things we do not do. What are some things that we do as a result of this? Where does this take us? I'll give the uh, eight things to you in capsule, and we'll walk through them one by one. First of all, we need to understand the visible church distinguished from the true or invisible church. Okay? Second, we need to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, periodically it says, let a man examine himself. Take a long, hard look at yourself. Is there evidence of being born again in your life? Have you been self-deceived? One of the biggest problems that uh, eternity is going to show with regards to the people referred to as tares is that in many cases they have been, what we would say, self-deceived. They've entertained, they've believed a lie, they've gotten to the point where God allows them and he confirms their believing of that particular lie. Third, this is a call for wisdom within the church. Four, it's a call to avoid the error, and we'll talk about this, but it's basically the error of a perfectionist schism, a division within the church because we have got to be totally perfect, totally right. Fifth, This is far-reaching. Who can I have fellowship with? This is probably more important for believers who work a secular job than it is for those of us who are privileged to work within a church. Guy in your workplace who works and goes to a church at a charismatic church, can you have fellowship with him? What about the woman who sits, uh, who's your secretary and who's a Roman Catholic? This is a question that this text raises for us. There is a call in this text to having confident trust in Christ, confident trust in his angels, 
his actions, and his rewards. Seven, this is a reminder. Church, don't forget that God is going to fulfill his purpose over time. We see that clearly laid out in this particular parable. Last and not least, there is a very powerful call to evangelism that we see in this particular text. This quest, uh, let me just ask a question. Anybody know who uh, we're seeing on this picture right now? John Calvin. All right. Calvin uh, has a fascinating quote from the Institutes, uh, and he helps us to understand the difference, the distinction between the visible church and the true church. The judgment which ought to be formed concerning the visible church which comes under our observation, must, I think, be sufficiently clear from what has been said. I have observed that the Scriptures speak of the church in two ways. Sometimes when they speak of the church, they mean the church as it really is before God. How does God see the church? How God sees the church as we understand it based on the written word of God, is the true church. How does God see the church? And then he goes on to say, the church into which none are admitted, but those who by gift of adoption are sons of God, and by the sanctification of the Spirit, true members of Christ. In this case, it not only comprehends the saints who dwell on the earth, this may boggle a little bit of our theology, uh, but all the elect who by grace of God and by faith, faith alone, who have existed from the beginning of the world. There is a sense in which Calvin puts into the true church all those who God has seen from the beginning of the world who are elect, who have been justified by faith and faith alone. He goes on to say, the true church differs, uh, and he points out that often too, by the name of church, is designated the whole body of mankind scattered throughout the world. This is the visible church that we're talking about. Who profess to worship one God and Christ, who by baptism are initiated into the faith, by partaking of the Lord's Supper, profess unity in true doctrine and charity, agree in holding the word of the Lord, and observe the ministry which Christ has appointed for the preaching of it. I love this next sentence. In this church, there is a very large mixture of hypocrites who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance of ambitious, avaricious, envious, evil-speaking men. Guys, you want to know and take to lunch, right? Not hardly. Uh, Some also of impure lives who are tolerated for a time. Tolerated for a time 
either because their guilt cannot be legally established or because due strictness of discipline is not always observed. Hence, as it is necessary to believe the invisible church, which is the church as is manifest to the eye of God, and that is also best understood as the true church, so we are also enjoined to regard this church, the visible church, which is so called with reference to man and to cultivate its communion. Calvin is saying, hey, look, we know that there is going to be this distinction, and yet we are called to honor and seek to maintain fellowship with the visible church, knowing even that there are going to be some imperfect people inside of that group. Why do we do this? The true church, you see a number of points on the uh, screen in front of you. The true church transcends time. I am a part of the true church. St. Peter is part of the true church. It cuts across millennia. It also cuts, guess what, across denominational lines. You're going to find that there are Nazarenes within the true church. You're going to find that there are My uh, power may be off. Should I keep talking? I think we're back on. You may even find some Roman Catholics within the true church. Those who did not know or buy into the official doctrine of the Catholic church, but who were in reality justified by faith and faith alone. Understanding and living out what they knew. How invisible? How is it invisible? After all, the servants see and are called to take protective action, and we already talked about that, including church discipline. It is invisible in this sense. The servants, the people of God, can only see a limited amount or portion of any individual's life. God sees the meditations of my heart, He sees what's going through my mind at night when nobody else, including my beautiful bride, is paying attention. He understands what is in the deepest heart of me. Isaiah 46.10, God describes himself as seeing or declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not done. The servants cannot know for sure whether a particular individual is, listen to these options, uh, an immature but true, genuine believer struggling with sanctification, a future believer due to the provenient sovereign grace of God, someone who was called before the foundation of the earth with God's irresistible grace, and yet who this point in time has not yet become a believer, or a hardened reprobate whose rejection of God has been confirmed by God's wrath of abandonment. We can't tell that within the limited time that we know one another, usually within the church. So for that reason, they cannot do a wholesale purge. Next thing that we do, 
we have to look at ourselves. Am I a self-deceived tear, or am I a plant of wheat? Does God look at my life and see me as a member of the true church? This is a call to self-examination. Again, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says that from time to time, the believer needs to examine himself. Now, there is uh, some material that is available at the end of the MacArthur Study Bible uh, that will help if uh, you want to make the effort to do that kind of thing in your own life and you're not sure where to begin. Two passages, however, will help a great deal. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and then Ephesians 5, 3 through 7 make it very clear that certain types of conduct, sexual immorality, both heterosexual immorality and homosexual activity. If it's the prolonged characteristic of the person's life, causes serious question as to whether the individual, if he or she professes to be a Christian, truly is and is not self-deceived. Substance abuse, where it is an ongoing, prolonged part of the life of an individual. Uh, The text of Scripture says you need to look closely as to whether or not uh, you have been Uh, deceiving yourself. I find that uh, the technology is getting away from me. Uh, I think I've brought it back to where we should be, but make sure that self-examination occurs. Secondly, a call for wisdom within the church. Conduct yourself wisely. Limit your words. Last week, Harry Walls uh, preached on Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7 describes an adulteress. Uh, The point of the passage is to teach wisdom to the simple. But the point that he is using, he describes an individual who is religious as all get out. She's part of the people of God. She's been to church. She's put her money into the offering. She's made her vows. She's carried it out. Now when her husband is away, she's trying to seduce someone into an ungodly relationship. That can happen. Harry provided a number of points, and I would suggest if you uh, hadn't heard him, you might want to get a copy of the recording and listen. We have to act wisely in our interaction with each other within the church. We want to avoid an error. We want to avoid an error, as I've indicated Uh, We cannot expect a perfect church of perfect people with perfect theology. This surfaced following an intense period of persecution. AD 303 to AD 305, two Roman emperors, Diocletian and Maximian, uh, were conducting an extremely vicious, violent, bloodthirsty persecution of the church. We would like to think... We would like to think uh, that all believers held firm and resisted accepting the consequences of professing Christ. Uh, Unfortunately, however, that did not happen. There were some who lapsed. There were some uh, who 
for a moment, provided whatever conduct was needed to satisfy or placate uh, the Roman officials where they were. Uh, Some church leaders actually handed over, and it's uh, more significant at that time, as you can understand, than now, copies of the scriptures to the civil authorities. Uh, The Latin word traditores leads to the modern word traitors. Well, the persecution was short-lived. After a period of time, it ended, and guess what? Some of the people, some of the leaders, wanted to come back into the church. Well, do you let them in or not? Um, You've been in church, you've been tortured, you've been in jail as a result of uh, holding fast to your faith, and now this guy who uh, reneged or disavowed the faith wants to come back in. You going to let him in? This is the danger of people who were right. They were right not to compromise. But when we are right, we have to be right in the right way. And they were right as to what they did, but out of pride, perhaps out of anger, uh, whatever the motive, in some cases it led them uh, to take a very restrictive action when wanting to decide whether other individuals should be allowed back into the church. This is referred to as the Donatist schism. It is a schism that I hope we never see again uh, as we come out of the COVID era, as we deal with the church coming back together. Um, They got so rigid in terms of the restrictions that they would go so far as to say And this is a very crucial question. Um, If you had been baptized by a priest or bishop who had denied the faith temporarily, your baptism was not good. If you had been called to Christ, if you had been married by someone who lapsed, was your marriage valid? They were trying to take the position that the ministry activities taken by those individuals would have to always be redone. Now, if nothing else, you can see that that would lend a chaos uh, and a torrent of unnecessary, inappropriate activity uh, into the church. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3 in part, addresses the situation. Christ points out, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, okay, when they're speaking ex officio, when they're speaking under the authority of the word, when they are communicating the word, that's what's implied there, when they tell you, you do what they say. You don't follow their example. Okay, So right there you have a, a, a beginning of the point. You follow their teaching, their preaching, their counsel, as it is consistent with the Word of God. Now, the individual in front of you, Augustine, probably the greatest theological mind of the early church, weighs in on that controversy 
Uh, and interestingly enough, he uses this particular parable, pointing out that the parable of the wheat and the weeds indicates we will never have uh, a humanly perfect church. Augustine contends, in essence, that as it is Christ who builds his church, he can and will call to saving faith even through the mouth of a Judas. This, of course, refers to the time when Christ sent the disciples out two by two, Judas Iscariot, the traitor of all time, the one who would have been good not to have been born, is calling people to repentance and saving faith in Christ. But there is no indication elsewhere in Scripture that when he did that, the people who came to Christ had to come again or had to undergo a new baptism. Christ sometimes can use even a Judas to call to repentance. There is a very prominent local clergyman. I will not mention his name. Uh, He has spoken at the college. Very faithful, prolonged period of time was called to Christ, led to Christ in true saving faith by another man. Over the course of time, this other man, it becomes quite apparent, uh, would preach the gospel on Sunday after engaging in homosexual partying activity on Saturday night. Okay? This illustrates, this helps us to understand how this can happen. God can use even... An adulterer, a murderer, an immoral person to call true believers to true saving faith. Slight variation on this question I was asked maybe about two months ago. Uh, one of the men in the choir walks up to me and he says, Hey, I'm at a, I know of a church where they've been wrestling with the question of whether or not uh, to sing a song, a Christ exalting song, great lyrics, no problem with them. Now that they know that the author and recording artist was a homosexual. Well, this crops up over and over. I've got probably two or three songs uh, on my own phone in which that problem may have emerged. One of the leading local Christian artists of a few years back was arrested when he was pulled over on a traffic stop and they found cocaine in his car. Great lyrics, Christ-exalting lyrics, edify the church. No, we don't stop listening to or enjoying that music. We continue because it is consistent with Scripture, it exalts Christ, and it is consistent with this. The hypocrisy or other lapses of those within church leadership did not, will not invalidate actions taken by them, music composed, sermons preached, counsel given, uh, or other actions. It is Christ who is ultimately calling people to repentance, albeit through the mouth of an imperfect human being. It is Christ, through that music, who is encouraging and building his body, albeit when the performer uh, may not be 
a true believer. It may, in fact, be self-deceit. Who can I fellowship with? Who are those within the true invisible church? Now, you have in front of you Matthew 12, 33 through 37. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Anybody ever hear somebody say, you can't judge the heart, you can't know the heart of an individual? Fairly common. But that is only partly true. It is only partly true. Uh, In the criminal justice system, certain facts are understood as demonstrating what is referred to as an abandoned and malignant heart. For example, an individual who's had uh, multiple DUI convictions, going out, drinking again, becoming totally intoxicated, and then getting behind the wheel, hitting someone, and ending someone's life. Yeah, we can understand that. We, we expect that. It's fairly commonplace in our understanding. The same thing is going to be true in the light of Scripture. Three things. Look at three aspects of the individual's life. This is acting wisely within the church. This is determining whether or not uh, within the workplace, within the family, you can have fellowship with someone. Is there right doctrine? This has to be limited to doctrines that are, quote, of first importance, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul says, I delivered unto you that which was of first importance. There are certain truths that there must be fundamental, foundational agreement, or we cannot have fellowship. The authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, Justification by faith and faith alone. That's not necessarily an exhaustive list, but that at the moment, as I'm going through this material, that's all that comes to mind. Uh, And that has to be distinguished from doctrines where believers, all with the impact of the fall on our minds, sometimes are struggling to understand. Right doctrine, right conduct... Conduct demonstrating the life of God and the soul of man. Conduct demonstrating regeneration. Conduct that does not demonstrate what the Scripture would refer to as, quote, self-deception, unquote. Conduct that perseveres in godliness as distinct from conduct that the Scripture would refer to as lawlessness. Conduct that fulfills the law of love as distinct from conduct that is careless and a stumbling block. Right speech. Right speech. Speech that honors God. Speech that is non-slanderous. One of the worst things about slander is that it dishonors the law of God, and it dishonors the image of God in the life of individuals. Speech that doesn't mix fresh water with salt water Uh, I changed this last night. It was reading speech that doesn't mix sewer water with salt water. Um, In my own case, there was a time when the speech, and I was convicted that what I was allowing to come out of my mouth had more in common with sewer water than it did with salt water or fresh water. But God called me to repentance through his word. Speech 
that is consistent with Ephesians 4 and James chapter 3 through 4. Okay, walking wisely within the word, within the world, realizing that we are in a church with imperfect people. We look carefully when we consider having fellowship. What do we do with this? Again, this is a call to confident trust in Christ, his angels, his actions, and his rewards. Merely by the fact that Christ tells this parable, merely by the fact that Christ communicates to his followers that this is an aspect of what you are going to encounter, merely by the outcome that the parable indicates is going to occur, we know that we can trust Christ. We know that he is not taken by surprise here. This is a call to confident, continuing, ongoing trust in Christ. The outcome. Eventually, eventually we're going to get to a point where it says the righteous will shine forth as the sun. Those who trust in Christ, 1 John chapter 3 says we purify him. We purify ourselves so that when he appears, we will be like him. The believer that has the least amount, the true believer that has the least amount of fruit, at some point yet to come, is going to be dazzling in the extent to which he or she reflects, demonstrates, transmits the glory of Christ. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, Again, those words, pay attention. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Daniel 12, verse 3, very similar passage. Those who have insight will shine like the glow of the expanse of the heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A call to remember that God will fulfill his purpose over time. That beautiful anthem by R.C. Sproul that the choir sang this morning. Worthy, he is worthy. Revelation 5.10, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Christ is building his church. Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 16 Uh, nothing will prevail against him. Nothing will keep that from occurring. God is going to fulfill his purpose over time. This passage reminds us of that. It tells it. It shows us to it happening. And there is one final thing that uh, we need to address. 
Uh, Richard Baxter, the great uh, Puritan, made a comment once. He says, I preached as though never to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Okay? And that is, in fact, the case that uh, we all find ourselves in when God gives us the privilege of opening his word in a time like this. I preached as a dying man to dying men. Every one of us will face that particular time. Every one of us, if God allows us to live long enough to reach the end of the age, will experience what Christ tells us at the end of this passage. He says the harvest, the time when it's finally right to harvest the wheat. The harvest is the end of the age. My dad worked for a number of years when he was in college as part of a reaping harvest crew. They would go from Texas up into Canada and back uh, harvesting wheat. Uh, I've seen it done on my uh, grandfather's farm. Uh, There comes a point in time in which a trained crew will actually harvest the wheat. In this case, the reapers, the harvest crew, are the angels. We understand that. Just as the tares are gathered up, and the passage says the tares will be gathered up first, and they are burned with fire in a normal harvest, so will it be at the end of the age. Now watch carefully the next passage. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness. Put another way, not one individual who is found to be a tear, a weed, or darnell at that time will escape. And will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've heard that description. You heard it at the end of Mike Riccardi's sermon this morning. Quite clearly, the Lord is indicating that those who are still weeds, still tares, self-deceived, hardened, deliberate, or otherwise, at that particular time, will find themselves cast into a, quote, furnace of fire, end of quote. It goes on to say there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a description elsewhere. We are very familiar with that. It describes hell itself. No one who has the privilege of proclaiming the gospel really wants to spend time dwelling on hell. And yet we will not be true to the text that we have the privilege of articulating if we do not include that within our proclamation. The greatest demonstration of the horror of hell, you may not have thought about that, but uh, we see it of all places in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. Christ himself knew what he would experience the next day. He would experience for a very short, compressed period of time the punishment of the guilty. 
For those who trust in Christ, he paid our penalty at that time. What does the text tell us? It says he was terrified. There was a sense of terror that hit him at that particular time. Luther's made the point, he says, no man has ever feared death, as did Christ himself in Gethsemane. Why do we point that out? It is a measure of the true horror of hell that fleshes out the express, explicit descriptions we see elsewhere in Scripture. We have the challenge, brothers and sisters who know Christ, of calling those among us who might be self-deceived to saving faith. We warn of the terrible, eternal consequences that will be experienced by the terrors. Again, with the realization that many among them are self-deceived. Matthew chapter 7. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not proclaim your word? And Christ says, depart from me. I never knew you. John the Baptist used the phrase, he actually in the context is speaking to some of the Pharisees that were there, but he uses a phrase, who has warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? We call men and women who do not know Christ with true saving faith to flee the wrath that is to come. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming before your word. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for the importance that you have indicated we need to give it. Father, I pray that your word would bear fruit in the lives of each individual who is here. We trust you. We love you. Father, may we be found faithful Father, we look forward to the day when we will shine as you have promised. Until that time, Lord, may we walk wisely. May we act as part of the true church and act wisely with those around us who do not do so. Guide us, Lord. I pray that your hand of blessing would rest upon each person. Bring us back this evening. We trust you and we love you. Amen.